This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Welcome to Amplify, the Australian Museum's regular podcast series where I get to talk to some of the amazing people who work behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO, and today my very special guest is actually one of my favourite people on the team, Michael Mell. He's the manager of our West Pacific collection, which is a fantastic collection. Welcome to Amplify. Thank you, Kim. I'm very happy and very delighted to be here and to talk with you, but also uh, to engage with everyone out there. Exactly, because it's fun to talk about our collection, especially this particular one that you manage. And, and of course, Michael, when you joined us about 11 months ago, I think 11, 12 months ago, the thing about you is you had been living in the Groken Highlands of Papua New Guinea for most of your life. Of course, you've studied in other places, visited Australia many times. I think you got your PhD here, yes? Yes, we did. That's right. So, But you're at Goroken University. And, of course, it's the magic of Papua New Guinea and the highlands that fascinates us all. Would you tell us a little bit about how you grew up there? Because you're at Mount Hagen, right? Yes, yes. So tell us what it was like. Well, um, growing up in the highlands... Um, uh, I have very vivid memories of growing up because it's had such an impact uh, on me. You're dealing with a, a place that's uh, absolutely wonderful in terms of climate. Uh, you're up about uh, one and a half to 2,000 feet up sea level. So in that sense, the air is not too thin, but they're not too heavy with mm. all the things that you would find on the coast. So it's not so, humid. No, it's, it's absolutely wonderful and very, very good air. As well as that, uh, the mountains are there, uh, but you've got very lovely, lovely valleys. And, of course, a lot of the agriculture that's very uh, well known for uh, in that part of the world is very much part of the river systems uh, and uh, the valleys that have been created over time. So uh, lots of food, uh, great communities, uh, wonderful families, uh, just and, the, and a great environment sounds, to, to really grow up. Sounds a bit ideal. It is very much ideal. I mean, everybody can have theirs, but I'll go to Hagen, I'll go to Goroka, I'll go to uh, those places anytime. I, I love the, the, the highlands in, in Papua New Guinea especially. So tell us about the agriculture there the, and what is grown there. Oh, the, the, main, the main staples are, are is uh, um, the locals call it cow cow, but it's sweet potato. Uh, there are, are lots of varieties and different tastes uh, that, uh, that, be, uh, that the women especially have been able to cultivate and uh, to feed our pigs, but more importantly to all the men and women and children. I grew up on cow cow, and uh, it's good stuff. Good stuff. And, and unlike uh, some, of the, uh, some of the niceties that you get now, I remember cow cow quite vividly in the way it was prepared. And, and, um, uh, and then, of course, you get the blessings of lots of vegetables. Um, and uh, our favorite ingredient in cooking was ginger. And together mm. with the so a local salt that was prepared from burning timber and ash and the way they did it, and it was quite an important commodity that use was uh, sold or at least exchanged in the community. So uh, a lot of our food we involved ginger and involved the local salt and uh, also cooking in, uh, not in uh, necessarily pots per se, but in, 
in uh, uh, earth ovens, if you like, oh, wow. and on open fires and so forth. So it was a very different way of life. And uh, I can still remember that. And then when we cooked in our saucepans and boiled stuff. and So you uh, lived uh, in a village. Absolutely. And, and in a hut. And you had a, a hut where it was all smoke. And, <laughs> but it was quite nice as well because I used to spend more time with my grandfather. And uh, he had a lovely round house. And all very warm and very cozy, and in it you'd have um, you'd get tired. You go to him. He'd have a, a nice couple of cowcos roasting in the fire, and then a nice log fire, and all warm. And in the evenings it's quite cool. And uh, when it's like that outside, you go into a, a nice warm hut, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, really beautiful. So mm-hmm. what was the hut constructed of? Uh, basically, it was constructed of uh, very fine wood that was harvested from the mountains, and then around it, uh, surrounding the walls, were very uh, woven mats mm-hmm. uh, made out of local material and then thatched roof. Wow. And, of course, all very tight and packed, mm-hmm. just so that you can contain the heat at nights, and then during the day, if there was a warm day, uh, or indeed a wet day, everything would be kept out. So it was always fresh and cool uh, during the day, and really nice and warm at nights, and so it was a lovely. Sensible building. Absolutely, and they knew how to do it in those days. So you came from a family where I believe your parents remember when they were young children seeing the first white people visit That is correct. Um, It was in 1933 that uh, the Lay brothers headed up into the highlands. They were really gold fossickers, and uh, they went up to our community. And at that time, my father and mother, uh, of course, at that time, because they were youngsters uh, living away from the community, I mean, separately, obviously, but uh, they remember them coming in. And uh, they remember them going up to, near to my mother's place, where there was, uh, um, they found the soil and the river systems um, uh, very much in favor of uh, it having uh, uh, gold, an alluvial gold. Yes. So they set it up, they dug around and did that, and then they could find that uh, there was something in there. So they really set up the whole structure there and started to dig up. Of gold mining. Yeah, of gold mining, yeah. that's what they did. So it changed that community. Now, it, it very much did. But you said your parents, even though they were only young, four and five years yeah. of age, they remember it very clearly. Very, very vividly. And, uh, of course, following the, the gold fossickers, on the back came the missionaries. <laughs> so the Catholic missionaries on the one side and then the Lutherans on the other side. And then eventually the Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of the mainstream started to come in. And there was a bit of a fight between the churches as to which ones belonged to the Catholics and which ones belonged. So there was a bit of a bonfire amongst <laughs> the churches about the locals. Yeah. And as we know, you know, when gold fossickers, gold miners come into a community like this and then the church comes... Then the alcohol comes, doesn't it? The bars open up. Yes, and a lot of changes did happen. And uh, the emergence of alcohol, the emergence of a cash economy, of paid employment, uh, all of those things in where you now needed to come in and uh, you were paid cash. Or initially you were paid not cash, of course. You were paid in bush knives and tobacco and uh, axes and the like. But gradually you could see that. And then, of course, following the church and the gold forsakers, the government agencies started to step in, established law and order, established administrative structures and local councillors and so forth and so on, which then led to paid employment 
and uh, and then the emergence of a local economy where the gold fossickers, of course, you then bring on the traders who brought the, the goods from outside in because everybody uh, needed one thing or another and the traders came in, uh, Chinese traders, Australians, others, and so a commercial event. So the village communities, my parents, grew up in that kind of emerging economy where wow. money now was introduced as a means of exchange and not necessarily the traditional stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was really um, challenging times and very exciting at the same time. And I imagine for their parents it of was course. a very shocking time because their whole way, way of life began to change. Of course. And, um, and uh, uh, they had to rearrange their days. Um, suddenly... Uh, instead of saying today, tomorrow, and the next day in language, you would say it's a Monday, it's a Tuesday, it's a Wednesday, and then it's Saturday. And then, of course, uh, Monday to Friday were known as work days, and Saturday was rest day, and then Sunday was a holy day, or you had to go to yeah. church. So they were named in those, and so people started to become more like, uh, become aware of the fact that the world was now. Uh, defined in a different way. Days and nights were not necessarily days and nights in the old way, but there were days of the week where you had to work and where you didn't have to work. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, Saturday was when you went out to town. Every other day, there was only one day that was set for the government where you had to do uh, road cleaning or road maintenance or do a range of things. So it was a completely uh, different system that was introduced. And um, they, they basically recruited a lot of young men who went out and said, you listen to them, uh, the white fellas, and do as they say. And there was a lot of discipline, a lot of uh, order that was set amongst it, so you couldn't get away from it. If you got away from it, you basically went to, you were put into uh, workloads or you were set into some sort of jail or some arrangement where you were harangued and harassed. But, Michael, yeah. you did get away from it in a different <laughs> sort of way, didn't you? Because you obviously were good at school. I'm imagining. Um, I'm, I've got to. I've got to give credit to uh, to all the nuns. Yeah. Because they were very, very tough. Um, discipline of the highest order, but at the same time, they made sure that we learned to speak the language, add up the numbers, do the correct spelling. Uh, so. I could look in a way negatively, but at the same time, in the way that things have been able to, I've been able to go the places I've been. I think that early education in the way that uh, these nuns and uh, people educated and trained us provided a lot of good, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I also, uh, I've also gone back to my village now. And because much later now I appreciate my own culture and my own heritage and I, and I went to school, I forgot my language or I didn't speak it as well. That's but right. uh, I went back and I started to speak it more and more. And yeah. really, Michael, you've become somewhat of a, a leader in promoting Papua New Guinean culture to our world and to understanding it and to being able to help make the modern interpretation of that relevant to Australians today. I think that's a, that's a very, very important. Um, I can never, um, um, if you like remove who I am in terms of my community, my parents, my heritage. I think that's a significant part of me. And I have to appreciate and I have to actually live it, talk about it and enunciate it in many ways, mm -hmm. in many forms uh, and, and, uh, and uh, on different platforms. But at the same time, I realize that I'm dealing with communities where 
my language is not their language, and therefore we have to find a medium where we can communicate with each other. And therefore, learning of the English language, reading, writing, and speaking of it um, has been a very important aspect as well. And so, if I want to talk about my culture, uh, which I very much like to and very often do, and hence uh, being involved in the museum has been made it a significant aspect, mm. and finding that platform of the English language to now exchange and cultivate and bring that forth, and that's been a wonderful experience, and it's all the more important. So you went to the University of South Australia, did you? Or I went to uh, the Flinders University, Flinders in, South University in South Australia. That's wow, correct. and did your PhD. So what did you study there? Um, I, I basically started, I, my background is in, in, uh, in performing arts because uh, in my own heritage and history, I grew up listening to some wonderful stories and uh, watching a lot of performances and both by my mother and my father and members of my community. So in many ways, I think some of those early encounters did shape me in a way that uh, I, I stuck onto the arts. Um, and, and, uh, and when I went on to doing later studies in uh, higher degrees, I, I basically went into performing arts and particularly focused on drama and, uh, and storytelling. And, um, and I really enjoyed doing that, and I tried to do that where I could go back and talk about my ways of telling stories, uh, whereas uh, Western theater, Western performances and playwriting, I could see it and I, I valued it, but I realized also that I had traditions that are very rich and I need to bring it out and share it. And so then you returned to the Groken Highlands and I think Correct. you spent 32 years at Groken University, is that, that right? That is correct. That is correct. It was, it teaching? Was, uh, yeah, teaching, teaching drama and uh, teaching uh, and training young teachers or at least uh, teachers who were going to go out and do secondary schools. And, um, and I really did that in, uh, first of all, advocating that our own cultures are very important and our own performing traditions are very important. We could never forget. We could not deny all of those in the face of changing times. So that was very important. But at the same time, trying to cultivate youngsters that could manage their own culture and at the same time engage with the world that was changing. So you mm. first became involved here at the museum, I think back in 2011 with the beautiful Birds of Paradise exhibition. Absolutely. And, and that was a fantastic um, uh, exhibition because uh, uh, for, for the Australian Museum to really see and connect with the Highlands and particularly with Birds of Paradise, and one of the things about the Highlands and uh, is uh, the variety of aviary life that is uh, uh, abundant in the Highlands. And of course, significant among those is uh, other different species of birds of paradise. And uh, given the plumage and the color and the vibrancy of those, uh, Highlands communities quite, uh, found great value, not only in, in, uh, in an economic sense, but also in um, in a cultural sense, in a spiritual sense, in those birds. And so uh, uh, connecting with that heritage and then coming to the museum setting and how they found that kind of uh, connection was very important. But what was important about the exhibition, and for that I appreciate now uh, the, the, different, the, the different attitude and approach they took, where one, they went and worked with communities who were very knowledgeable and familiar with uh, the birds of paradise and the way in which they engaged with them, the way in which they performed, and in, in many ways became them. And of course, the Australian Museum is very well known in terms of the science and the research uh, in the way that they've gone about studying 
animals and plants in the in the in the in, in our region. That's right. So in that the sense, collection is quite large, isn't yes, it? Yes, very. And um, uh, for for the Pacific, uh, we have in excess of about sixty thousand objects, and uh, uh, half of that almost. Uh, well, a little over half of it uh, is uh, is from Papua New Guinea. Extraordinary. An extraordinary uh, collection of, of birds of paradise feathers, including, and uh, a, a whole host of material, cultural uh, material, that's now here at the Australian Museum. The other uh, big project you were involved in most recently was, of course, with the Asaro Mudmen. Oh, of course. And making those masks, and we had a wonderful delegation of Asaro Mudmen come to the museum and yes. make their traditional mud masks. And, and once again, I think that's, that's uh, really the step that the Australian Museum is taking in wanting to actually engage with communities, communities who are the owners, if you like, of culture and uh, of how they now need to engage with uh, not only the museum but also with members of the communities that surround the museum that sharing cultures and sharing an engagement and having a, a conversation, if you like. And uh, that's been one of those exciting parts of that, uh, that particular exhibition as well. I mean, it's incredibly important to have you here to work on the West Pacific collection and the Papua New Guinean collection because it does create that direct link back to PNG and it also gives more value to the collection to have you here for us interpreting it as well and creating those community links. Here at the Australian Museum, you can see some of that collection in our new Westpac Long Gallery. Yes, you can see it up in Pacific Spirit on Correct. Level 1. But most of it is not on display, unfortunately, because uh, we don't have the spaces yet. I hope to in the future that we could show more of it and have more community performance here on site because... Every time people visit us from the West Pacific, it is so exciting to share that culture firsthand. Absolutely. And, and more recently, of course, we've had the Solomon Islanders uh, that have come in, uh, the choir community from, uh, you know, from Malaita. And uh, uh, they, uh, this is not their first time, obviously, but the fact that they've connected with the science researchers, but also with the cultural collection and in the way that they've really connected with some of the cultural material that we have in the collection and also providing workshops and in the workshops where they have engaged with the public and the community here in Sydney of showing and sharing, of skill sharing, of knowledge sharing. I think that goes a long way now to our museums. It does. That, uh, that the, this is a shared space of of our historical linkages. One can quite easily go into uh, it was them and us. Uh, it was how destructive this was. But on the other side, on the flip side, we have all the shared. We were affected, but they were affected too. Yes. So it's a sharing. It's our ability now to share the stories and connect with each other and begin to appreciate what we have now and then navigate together for whatever the future might be. So in that sense, the museum's are such a wonderful and lovely space. It is, and I, I'm very committed to us exploring that nexus between culture and science because only in a museum like this can you really see that link coming out through these collections, through the stories, through the community connection. And that's very exciting for the future, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think in many ways... Uh, uh, particularly for indigenous communities and communities in the highlands, for example, 
the use of science in a very practical way, in a very application kind of way. They did think about how and why and how things worked, but utilizing all of that knowledge into doing things, from making things, and how certain things seem to work together. And uh, having that science, and yet science serving a cultural aspect to making sense of life and uh, forming great relationships and in those great exchange ceremonies that the Highlanders are well known for. Uh, and all of that is really a relationship between science and culture, how to uh, re remain separate but quite often work together to create human life and make life meaningful. Well, thank you, Michael Mell, for being with us at the Australian Museum. We love having you as part of the team here. But also, I think it's so important that Australians come to know more about Papua New Guinea. You're our closest neighbour to the north. And we've been so involved in the development of Papua New Guinea, but few Australians really understand it. So having you with us at the Australian Museum, I think, can help bridge that gap a bit too. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. Uh, absolutely. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.